Father, we thank you for the celebration of Easter that continues beyond one day. And we ask that you would help us today to understand even more of what this amazing event, world-changing event, means for each of us and for our world. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the time of year when, as Kelly mentioned, there are heightened levels of apprehension, anxiety, maybe some fear about the future. Uh, we are, we're asking questions like, what does God want to do with my life now? What's the next step I should take? What, what's the next venture in my life? questions that aren't limited to people who might be graduating from school. It's questions that all of us face, that it's concerns that all of us have, it's struggles that, that all of us experience, because in some way or another, all of us have an unknown element of the future in our lives. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what's going to happen a week or a month or a year or ten years from now. There is always that sense of the unknown that has, can bring to us both a sense of excitement about what might be and apprehension about what might be. And we live with that. I suspect that this is something of what the disciples are feeling as we come to John 21. They've had some amazing experiences with Jesus. The roller coaster ride of Good Friday and Easter has left them exhausted and wondering what exactly is coming next. And they have, they have encountered Jesus. He has already come to them twice. But they aren't quite sure when all of this, what all of it means. And they have a sense of uncertainty, of, of excitement and apprehension and probably a little fear. So what do you do when you're faced with this kind of uncertainty? What do you do when you're wondering, Lord, where do I go from here? And you're not really getting the answers that you think should come. What do you, how do you proceed in these moments? Most of us go back to what we know. We go to the places that are comfortable for us. It's no surprise that that's exactly what the disciples do. They aren't rejecting Jesus. They just aren't sure what Jesus wants to do next with them and for them. And so they go fishing. And it's interesting to me that it's while they're fishing that Jesus meets them. But that's always the way it is with Jesus, isn't it? That's the way it's always been with God. He keeps meeting us wherever we are. We go this way, Jesus goes this way. We go that way, Jesus goes that way. We have a tendency to think that, that Jesus is expecting us to come to him. But every resurrection appearance is a tale of Jesus coming to someone. Every appearance of the resurrected Christ is an act of grace initiated by Jesus. I wonder what it would do to our theology more importantly, our image of God, if we could see God as the one who is seeking us, 
coming to us rather than the way we typically envision it. That God, we, God expects us to come to him. I wonder how it would affect our behavior if we could really believe that God is more interested in us than we are in him. That God is willing to invest everything to connect with us, even when we're running from him. That God is far, far, far more invested in relationship with us than we are with him. Think about a famous person that you would love to know. Someone you'd love to meet. You're thinking about that person, it might be someone related to politics or sports or literature or entertainment or fashion or academics, whatever it may be. You think of that person, you have them in your mind, someone you would love to meet. And imagine one day you hear a knock at the door and you open it and there they are. And they explain to you that they would love to build a friendship with you. And your eyes are this big around. And you invite them in and you eat together and they stay for a few hours. But it's not just one visit. They come back the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And they're calling you and emailing you and texting you. Hey, can we meet uh, Thursday? How about five o'clock on Friday? Can we have lunch on Saturday? And actually, it's getting a little bit freaky because they're kind of relentless with you. And you can't believe that you're actually contemplating a restraining order on Derek Jeter. Or Bono. Or Oprah. Or Denzel Washington. Or Jennifer Lopez. Or me, because I'm sure I was one of the first people that came to your mind. Wow, that's a lot of laughter. I don't know. And you're thinking, man, they are really putting themselves out there. It's almost embarrassing. They have no shame. I mean, we understand a restraining order if it were us chasing them. But it doesn't work the other way around in this world in which we live. And yet, here is Jesus coming, seeking his, his disciples and his people again and again and again. They aren't chasing him. He's chasing them. They aren't seeking him. He's seeking them. And he's seeking us continuously, relentlessly, unashamedly. I think our understanding of this concept is crucial for our understanding of the sacraments. We don't gather at this table because we have become worthy. Or because we finally found our way to God. We gather at this table because we have finally come to realize that God has come to us in Christ. And God is offering life to us in Christ. And we are simply responding to his offer. We come to this table to celebrate the presence of God with us. Loving us, teaching us, leading us. It's in the presence of the resurrected Christ that we understand more and more of who God is. Not only as the one who seeks us, but the one who teaches us, reveals his power in us, and wants relationship with us. Because ultimately, our faith, our relationship with God, is about being personal, God being personal with us. Jesus sitting around a campfire with his friends. And they know it's Jesus, and it's in the knowing, in that personal experience, is at the heart of the whole Christ event. It's always personal. 
The resurrected Christ is always personal, always relational. It's always been this way. It's the way it's always been with God. It's the way it was with Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and Jacob and David and the disciples. It is God desiring to be personal with his people. God is personal because God is about relationships. And good relationships are about all of life. Not just one part of it, but everything about life. I wonder if sometimes one of the reasons we exclude Jesus from everyday life because we think of Jesus as being interested in and only knowledgeable about the religious with the things that we classify as spiritual parts of life. But to say that God is personal is to say that God is interested and involved in every part of our lives. Every moment, everything we do, he knows what we do. He is interested in what we do. He understands everything about whatever it is that we do. I remember the day it occurred to me that Jesus isn't just the most prolific theologian that ever lived, but that he knows everything about everything. It was Dallas Willard that, who opened my eyes And he said the idea that Jesus is the master of fields like algebra, economics, business administration, or French literature doesn't usually cross our minds. And we have a hard time grasping that. In our culture, among Christians as well, Jesus Christ is almost automatically disassociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. Not one in a thousand would spontaneously think of him in conjunction with words such as well-informed or intelligent or smart. And that's what's so interesting to me when I read this story about them catching the fish. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, no. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And these guys are professional fishermen. They have probably been fishing since they were little children. What in the world does this former woodworker, now theologian, know about fishing? Now, of course, we believe that Jesus is the greatest theologian that ever lived. I'm not sure we we really grasp that about all the other disciplines of life. But it makes sense that Jesus who created the sea and all the creatures in it would be a better fisherman than John and Peter. I mean, it makes sense that Jesus who created the earth and all of its intricacies knows more about physics than Einstein or any of the other great physicists. It makes sense that Jesus, who put together the order of this world, knows more about mathematics than Pythagoras or Euclid or Gauss. Jesus, who created the elements of the periodic table, surely knows more than any of the great chemists like Pauling or Mendeleev. The one who put economics into creation understands it better than Adam Smith or Fama and French. The one who brought notes and music into existence is the greatest, greater composer than Bach or Beethoven or Bernstein. Pick the most brilliant engineer at GM. Go get the most gifted mechanic you can find. And Jesus knows 
tons more about cars than either of them. Pick the smartest guy that works at Microsoft, the smartest woman that works at Apple, the smartest person that works at Sun Microsystems or any of these other places, technological places. Jesus knows more about computers than any of them will ever dream of knowing. And we know that intellectually, but it doesn't always communicate in everyday life. There's something in our arrogance that wants to believe, well, yeah, Jesus knows that, but I know this. One time Cindy and I were out shopping and we came upon this sort of once in a lifetime uh, going out of business furniture sale. And we had been looking for some stuff and we found a couple of pieces and we had our van and we're thinking, okay, we'll just put these right in the van. And the guy loading it says, yeah, I don't think so. And I'm like, oh, sure, if you just turn it this way. He goes, no, it's not going to happen. I said, well, what about this? No, it's not going to happen. I said, well, can you at least try? And he said to me, okay, but the look on his face was, here's a guy who thinks he knows more about loading things than we do who've been doing this for years and years. We had to make two trips. (laughs) It was something in my head that thought, yeah, I know these guys know their stuff, but I think I figured this out. And I think we do that with Jesus. I can hear the conversation in the boat. What does this yokel think he knows about fishing? We've been out here all night. Does he think that that we don't know what we're doing? This is our life. But all it takes is one overflowing net to make them say, okay, I guess he knows what he's talking about. Jesus is always about the details of our lives. He's not just looking for a one-dimensional relationship with us. He wants to be in everything, every moment, in our jobs, what we do and how we do it and how we relate to our coworkers. And in our homes, how we treat each other, what we do with each other, how we respect each other. In our leisure time, what we do and what we don't do. He is just as concerned about what we do when we're not here as he is concerned about what we do when we are here. He is just as concerned about our relationships at work as he is about our willingness to sing his praise when we come here. As you think about your life, your job, your future, your relationships. No one understands them. No one knows what is right and best like Jesus does. He understands every single intricacy of your life. He understands everything that that you hope and dream. And he can do miraculous things far more than any of us can ever imagine. He can lead us and guide us. And we can trust him. Because he's not an impersonal deity somewhere out in space. He's personal with us. I love the image of Jesus and his disciples when they come into the shore. Beginning at verse 9. 
It says, when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. He said to them, come and have breakfast. It reminds me that relationship is not just about knowing each other. It reminds me that relationship and the ability to know each other takes time. It takes investment. And you cannot build relationships quickly. I suspect if we were running this show, we wouldn't waste our time with sitting around a campfire eating fish and bread. We'd be coming up with a strategy to send these guys out and get started. But Jesus says, hey guys, come on in. Have a seat. Sit down. Let's eat. Let's talk. Because that's what friends do. That's what relationship is about. It's the way of Christ. And then what we do simply flows out of the time we spend with Christ. But you can't rush that. John Orberg tells about a time not long after moving to Chicago where he he called a, a friend and was asking him some advice about spiritual direction. He took a few moments to explain what was happening in his life. He was at a new church where he was serving and the pace of things at that church was rapid. And he explained their family situation. You know, they had children that were, they were running to soccer games and after school events and nighttime meetings with teachers and all of that kind of family rhythm that many of us know. And he said, I, I expressed as best as I, best I could what was going on in my heart. And then I said, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? And there was a long pause. And finally, his friend said, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Another long pause. And he said, okay, I've written that one down. I've got it. That's really good. What else? He said, I'm thinking to myself, all right, I have limited time. It's a long distance phone call. I'm trying to cram as much spiritual advice into as short a time as possible. What do you got for me? Another long silence. And then his friend said, there is nothing else. You have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Orberg says, as he has contemplated that more and more, he has come to realize that hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual lives. Hurry destroys our souls. Because we think that our faith with God is about results. And he keeps trying to tell us it's about relationships about spending time with him, learning, listening, being in his presence. The resurrected Christ is present with us because he is more interested in relationship with us than in anything we might be able to do for him. And I think in our culture, in our church culture, where we're continually bombarded with faster, newer, better, stronger, greater, that's a hard word for us. Because we judge the value of things not by how solid is our relationship, but how much have we accomplished. 
But Jesus wants us to understand that God's ultimate reason for creating us is not to rule over us. It's not so we can accomplish great things for him. It's in order to be in relationship with us. And this is why in the midst of a miracle that proves the power and the knowledge of Jesus, he says to the guys, come on, sit, eat, talk. And it's intriguing to me that the fish they eat isn't what they've caught. It's what Jesus brings to the table. It's already there when they arrive. The table to which we come today is a call to relationship first. It's an opportunity to eat in his presence the food that he graciously supplies. Food of of joy and peace and truth and love and resurrection and life. Because ultimately this is not an event about how much Jesus knows or about how much Jesus can do. It's an event that reveals how much Jesus cares. His desire for intimacy with us now and forever. So all is ready. The meal is prepared. And God is calling us in Christ to put down the nets of the demands of our lives. And to get out of the boats that so often drive our lives. And come and sit with him. And eat. And be filled. And blessed. Holy Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for your desire of relationship with us. We are not mechanical beings that just produce. We are people you love. People you desire intimacy with. People you want to fill with the fullness of your spirit. As we come to your table today, we ask that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. We pray, Father, that these will be instruments of your spirit to speak deeply into our souls, that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we may be filled anew with your food. Father, give us hearts that are open to you. And as we come and eat, may we truly be filled and blessed. Amen.